When we have it, we rarely give it any thought. When we don't have it, we can hardly think about anything else. For millions of Americans, it was the number one issue that swayed us to vote the way we did in a recent election. The topic is so huge, it's hard to even know where to begin. Our health. On the day that our son was born, he was perfectly healthy first thing in the morning. The day was completely surreal as we snuggled his soft skin for the first time, gazing into his pretty blue eyes, unable to take our eyes off of him. Well, Dave did watch the Chiefs game, but other than that, we gazed at our newborn. It was the perfect day. He was perfectly healthy. And then that night, after the entire family went home and said their kisses goodnight, I was alone in the room when the physician knocked on the door, a doctor I had never seen before in my life, to tell me that my child would be transferred immediately to the NICU because of some kind of spiky fever thing. And my heart leapt into my throat and I panicked and called Dave. What could be more important than our good health? Without good health, what is life? I think of my sister-in-law, Dorothy, she spends most of her waking hours taking care of my 95-year-old father-in-law. Now, he has everything he needs at the retirement home. All his meals are provided. He has fabulous medical care, good activities. But Dorothy gets up every morning to spend her day emotionally encourage him encouraging my father-in-law. She plans little outings for him with friends to the big boy. She arranges to get him to church, and she spends a good deal of energy trying to convince him not to buy a red pickup truck and get remarried. <laughs> Although we tend to take our good health for granted, many of us struggle with health issues on a daily basis. We worry about a teenager who is depressed. We schedule endless doctor visits to manage a chronic condition. We diet and exercise to prevent getting one of those dreaded diseases. We attend AA or Al-Anon. We negotiate with the insurance company to pay for the drug that they are convinced we do not need, but which the doctor says we must have. You know, as I begin to outline this sermon series, Why the Church Never Talks About, I realized that this topic of health didn't quite fit in the way that the others did because on the other topics, race, politics, sex, people find themselves embroiled in controversy. But health? Who's against health? We're all for it. Still, our church doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it, do we? I wonder how it could be that we all spend so much time, so much energy, so much focus on creating good health. Good health for ourselves, good health for our loved ones, good health for the community, and yet the topic rarely comes up at church unless we have a prayer concern for a friend who is sick. About 20 years ago, our phone rang in the middle of the night. I remember waking up and hearing Dave's tone of voice and knowing that something was terribly wrong. A friend was calling about his teenage son. 
The son was out of control, threatening to harm himself and his family. They couldn't calm him down. The, the mom and the little sister, they were terrified. The dad was completely panicked. What can we do, they asked. They were not calling because Dave was a psychologist. They were not calling because I was a pastor. This was a call from a friend to a friend. I heard Dave say, do you think you could get him in the car? Could you get him to the hospital? I heard Dave suggest the name of the hospital. The good news was that the son did go. He was admitted to the psych ward and he began the long road to healing and is thriving today. But what I have never forgotten these 20 years later was the fear, the secrecy of it all. The family was so ashamed. They didn't want anyone to know. It was such a lonely place for them to be. Sometimes we hunger for health, but we're so embarrassed. Embarrassed to even let anyone know, even our closest friends know how terribly we are suffering. And the irony is that so many churches began hospitals in this country. St. Luke's on the Plaza, an Episcopal hospital. St. Joseph's out south, a Catholic hospital. Shawnee Mission, an Adventist hospital. There was a time when churches in this country started hospitals because that was how we understood our calling to act out Jesus's command, heal the sick. But somewhere along the way, we churches started focusing exclusively on the spiritual and the hospitals got the physical realm and we forgot that the body and the mind, the body and the spirit can absolutely not be separated. And now the medical field is telling us this from their own research. They are connecting the dots in the medical world between our emotional, physical, and spiritual health. A recent study done by a cardiologist suggested that, showed that stress and despair can actually cause physical, visible changes to the heart muscle. Other studies show that loneliness can increase our risk of early death. Loneliness limits our longevity at almost the same rate as does obesity or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. You know, maybe one reason we don't talk about health at church is because we ourselves are a bit ambivalent about the topic. Oh, sure, sure, we want to be healthy, but we do not need one more thing to feel guilty about, like not getting enough steps in or eating that extra cookie in the parlor. We know, we know, we know that exercise and healthy eating and socializing, all, they're good for us. We, you know, as a nation, spend almost $20 billion on athletic footwear each year and 60 billion on weight loss programs. But do you know what else? 67% of folks with a gym membership never use it. We feel guilty, don't we, about not taking better care of our health? We are not healthy as an entire nation. We long for good health, but we can't seem to do what we know is best for us. And in some areas, it seems to be even getting worse, like for our teenagers. In a recent five-year period, the rates of severe depression in teenagers increased. 
from 5.9% to 8.2%. And it is shocking that in this land of plenty, over 1.7 million teens with severe depression received no treatment at all. That's enough teenagers to fill every Major League Baseball stadium on the East Coast twice a crisis, don't you think? And so what does our faith have to say to this situation where we long for health? Does God, do you think, care about our bodies? Or does God only care about our souls? The Bible, of course, is filled with stories about healing. It seems like on every page in the Gospels, Jesus is healing someone, a child, an elderly person, a woman with a blood flow, a man who is blind. He reaches out and touches those whom no one else will touch, the leper. He lets the woman touch him, anointing him with oil. Human touch in the Bible often conveys a divine message, a message of love and grace. And Jesus also heals the demon-possessed and the outcast, which I suspect means that mental health was just as much of a worry in the ancient world as it is for us. And Jesus concluded his mission on the earth by charging us to go out and be those who heal, healing the brokenhearted and the broken body, both high on Jesus' agenda. But in my mind, the most powerful verse in the Bible, the most powerful verse in the Bible on health is the one that we just read in Genesis 1, the story where God created us. Genesis 1, you recall, tells us about the creation of the world. And if you read Genesis 1 as a science lesson, you will miss the point. Genesis 1 answers the question, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where did the stars come from? From God. Where did that dolphin come from? From God. Where did the giraffe come from? From God. For five days, God creates. And every day at the end of the day, God sits back and crosses God's arms and looks at what God created and says, good, good work. And then on day six, God creates you and me, male and female. And God says, wow, very good. And in Hebrew, this very good is not like morally superior good. It's more like lovely and pleasing and beautiful. When God gets around to creating you and me on the sixth day of creation as the final act of creation, the story begins to crescendo, and then it slows down just a wee bit and lingers there in this moment of God creating humankind, and we are told that God gives us God's very own creation to realities. We are given the responsibility to have dominion, and we are given the title created in God's own image and likeness, male and female, in God's image. Rabbi Sherry Held explains that in the ancient Near East, only the king was given that kind of honor and that kind of responsibility. The grand hierarchy of the cosmos 
everyone got it. God up here, the king right below God with divine responsibility and privileges, and the rest of us just human plebes down here at the bottom. The king was thought of as having divine presence. We were thought of as just nothing. We could not challenge the king in the ancient world no matter what, because the king was like a god. It was nothing like a modern-day democracy where a leader is elected to serve for a term. The king was God's very person here on earth in God's image. And then comes along this radically challenging message from the book of Genesis, a radically different understanding of the cosmos. In this story, every single person, every single person created in God's image the rabbi says, Genesis 1 makes the claim that every single one of you is a king or a queen. And we are not here to rule over one another. We are here to be in charge of taking care of God's creation, tending to God's garden. We are here to continue the creative work that was begun by God. And so I wonder, when you get up in the morning, and you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror, do you see that little blemish? Do you see that little eyebrow problem? Or do you see, hey, that's the image of God. And when you look at those that you love, do you see, he needs to kind of work on that? Or do you see God's divine imprint on her face? Reinhold Niebuhr wrote, the mystery of human selfhood is only a degree below the mystery of God. But too often, we're just so hard on ourselves. We blame ourselves for not getting life done just right. And we fail to see what God sees in us, God's spitting image. One ancient rabbi used to teach that when a person makes their way in the world, the angels walk before them and proclaim, make way for the image of God, for a picture of God, for an icon of God. The blessed Holy One is coming. If you and I are walking around shining like the Holy Ones of heaven, God's very own image, how might we live? My friend Cheryl told me about this couple in her church. The man had Alzheimer's. They were still living in their own home, but his memory was rapidly fading. She was in the kitchen one day. He was in the den. He got up out of his easy chair. He came into the kitchen. He looked at her standing there by the stove, and he said to her, Would you marry me? And she said, Well, yes, Fred, I, I will marry you. And he beamed, and he walked back into the den and sat back down in his easy chair because, you see, even when we are not in perfect health, we are in God's image. Our health is a miraculous gift to be treasured and tended as a holy responsibility. We often see these bodies of ours as flawed and broken. We often see that our wills are weak. And maybe it's because we have not remembered this message from Genesis 1, where we are defined as human beings in this way. The famous 
disciple preacher Fred Craddock said that God created human beings to look like God, but we so often forget what it means to be human. For example, and I'm paraphrasing Dr. Craddock now, if you go out to the Royal Stadium and you see that catcher who has caught 300 pitches in a row perfectly, and then he bobbles, someone in the stands will say, ah, can't believe he did that, and somebody else will say, well, he's only human. But what about when he caught the ball 300 times in a row flawlessly? What was that? Or if Dina is playing this pull all the stops out or on the organ piece, and our souls just soar as we listen to the magnificent organ, and we feel like we've been ushered in right up to the gates of heaven, and we go out into the parlor, and somebody's getting a cup of coffee, and they say, oh, wasn't that marvelous? But then later, Dina drops one of the hymnals on the organ, and it goes, Rrr. somebody will say, well, she's only human. <laughs> what if you have friends over for dinner? You work all day. You cook the most magnificent four-course dinner you've ever made. Someone says after dinner, I think that's the best meal I've ever eaten. And you say, why, thank you. And they come back two weeks later, and you make pot roast, and you burn it, and it tastes like shoe leather, and you dump it in the trash, and you say to yourself, well, I'm only human. Craddock asks, why do we only say that we're human when we make mistakes? We are made in God's image. So Craddock begs us, don't ever say, I'm only human. When someone says to you next time, that dinner was fabulous, you say to them, well, I'm human. Or when somebody comes up to Dina afterwards and says, oh, Dina, that, that piece, that was marvelous, she'll say, I'm human. Or when you're out on the golf course and you're on the 18th green and you make the putt that everyone knows cannot be made, you just sit back and you say, well, I'm human. Each of us, we are created to look like God. And that does not mean that we are invincible. We will all die, all of us. It does not mean that we are not fragile. We are terribly vulnerable but it does mean that each one of us has a sacred responsibility to care for our own health and the health of one another. I'll close with this. I was inspired recently to read about a runner named Allison Kiefer. Allie excelled as a distance runner in high school. She attended college on an athletic scholarship. After college, she thought she might make it as a professional runner, and so she began to train with a coach in Boulder. But in the world of professional running, Allie didn't seem to fit. She wasn't thin enough, and everyone kept telling her to diet. And finally, she got tired of the pressure, and she quit. She went home to New York. She gave up running. She took a job as a nanny. <coughs> Recently, her story appeared in multiple publications because after she quit running, she just needed to make some new friends. And so she went to Central Park 
and she took a little jog with some friends and her friends enjoyed running and so they often ran recreationally and she was making more friends that way but now running was different for her. She had no goals, no opponents, no time to meet, no pressure to fix her physical inadequacies. Not only was she happy, she began to notice that in this kind of recreational path of running, she was running a bit faster and faster and faster. And so in 2017, when Allie was 30, she ran the New York Marathon. And in that marathon, she beat her own personal time by 15 minutes. This unknown woman with no sponsors sprinted past Olympic runners and came in fifth overall in the marathon, the second fastest American woman. I wonder if someone saw Allie that day and said of her, wow, She's human, and I wonder if on that day, Allie felt God's imprint upon her. No pressure, just joy, no perfection, just divine beauty. Wherever you are on the journey, your life radiates God's holy goodness. When God created us in God's own image, God shared with us power and the responsibility to lovingly care for this gift of life. The health of the world is our calling.